Welcome to this edition of the JNMP podcast. The treatment of multiple sclerosis has been transformed over the last decade with the use of high efficacy treatments and increasingly we're moving away from looking at outcomes in shorter term clinical trials to longer term real world impacts critical in a disease which typically affects younger adults. Joining me today to discuss some of these challenges is Sharon Roman who has provided an editorial commentary on barriers to employment in patients with multiple sclerosis in the January edition of JNNP. Sharon's well-placed to discuss this article, uh, being a patient advocate, herself having a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, and also serving as a member of the patient editorial board for the JNNP. So a very warm welcome, and thank you for joining me on today's podcast, Sharon. Well, thank you for having me, Colin. I suppose I, I'd start by making the point that research papers are, are probably the primary way we communicate scientific knowledge, but we recognise that they can't always cut through the lived experiences of patients. And so maybe I could just start by asking you how multiple sclerosis has affected you uh, with regards to this area of employment and, um, and how, how it affects people in their general day-to-day living. Well, MS definitely makes employment difficult to maintain. And that leads, as we know, to substantially reduced income levels and living standards for many patients and their families. Fitting into the standard model of work can be quite difficult, and the financial and psychosocial ramifications can be enormous. And MS has certainly affected my employment history. The meeting with the prospective clients that I wrote of in the editorial did not go over well, as you can imagine, and the deal never materialized. On another occasion, even though I tried to explain my dysarthria and unsteadiness, a remark was made about contracts being void if any party had been drinking, and that day too ended without a signature. So my symptoms were suspect. I took a different job, and a few months after I started that, I was having quite a bad day and approached my manager. But instead of being given accommodation, I was sent home permanently. I was terminated. My reality has not been the neat and tidy retrain and accommodate that I so often read of in studies and the ability to participate in life in general can become quite a challenge, let alone being able to fulfill the duties of employment on a reliable basis. So, so you know, that's a really first-hand experience of, of some of the challenges and, and really discrimination you faced when you were uh, seeking employment. And I think that gets to some of the point that, you know, whatever studies we do, looking at a, a patient employment, they can't get to those lived experiences of, of discrimination and feeling marginalized and indeed people getting it completely wrong and assuming something about a patient. But I might, might turn to the actual paper itself that you um, provided the commentary on. So this paper talks about looking at this idea of no evidence of disease activity or, you know, which another way of putting that is saying people have clinically stable disease. And they found, Charmer and colleagues found that um, if you had this no evidence of disease activity, you'd uh, reduce risk of losing your income or requiring a disability pension compared to those with more active disease. So I know, I know you've reviewed this paper for your commentary, and um, I wonder what your thoughts were when you read the paper. Well, the results 
obviously reflect the reality of many patients in the study, but again, not necessarily my experience. When I read the paper, I had questions about the types of employment and the nature of the symptoms that the patients experienced. What were the differences between those who remained employed and those who didn't? And I think it needs to be further investigated if possible. For example, what were the types of employment that were maintained? Were they skilled or not? And how long had the patients been employed? And what were their particular presentations of disease? Which functional system was affected? Were they able to go on short-term disability if they needed to instead of long-term? These details matter to the picture as a whole, in my opinion. We may find that the patients who maintained employment were old enough to have been established with their respective companies or skilled enough to be of enough value to the company to retain or that they were lower on the functional system score to begin with. I think a, a clearer picture of who stayed employed and who didn't may allow for future interventions at some level that can help some patients remain in the workforce longer. And the study overall speaks to me of the advances being made with the treatment of MS. I think um, this is one of the issues, isn't it, really, when we do these large epidemiological studies that do provide really uh, quite nice data, but there these kind of individual variations of what, you know, what was somebody doing and um, what type of job. And, and you know, as a neurologist, we often see patients who will tell us that their employer will bend over backwards to keep their employee employed because they're such a good member of the team. Uh, and so those kind of relationships that built up over, over a period of time, um, as you say, weren't really well captured in, in, in this particular study and certainly an area that I think does need to be looked at. I think you also mentioned in your commentary that not just looking at the epidemiological side of things in terms of what were people's backgrounds and um, types of jobs that they're working in, but also how we measure change and how we measure disability. And most of us would agree that the tools we have are are rather crude. And I think particularly you, you mentioned the EDSS, which places particular emphasis on the physical symptoms. What do you think we should be doing in, in being able to capture the multi-dimensional nature of, of multiple sclerosis? How do we uh, capture these things in, in trials? Well, that's a good question. I understand that invisible symptoms like uh, energy levels, fatigue, concentration, mental endurance are subjective and are thus difficult for an observer to measure but the impacts they have might be quantifiable. So patients know the modifications they may have made in their lives in order to accommodate their invisible symptoms. And the modifications they've made may be quantifiable. So I would keep a measurement scale simple with rankings of mild, moderate, or severe much like a scale of one to 10. And yes, it's subjective, but again, the cumulative results might not be. Then ask, does the symptom interfere with activities only occasionally, weekly, or on a daily basis? 
does the patient have to modify their life around it? Or is the symptom manageable the way it is? So fatigue could be mild enough to push through a day, most days of the week, but go to bed early most nights, or severe enough to have to rest throughout the day, every day. Does it have an impact on quality of life? Now take these scores and quantify them over time. And I think you might have a data set. I mean, it's, it's rudimentary, but it's an outline of a bigger picture of the impacts the invisible symptoms can have. So I think for any um, researcher working in this area, I think that's really important advice that, you know, from a patient who, who's looking at the impact of symptoms on living and um, some, something that people can reflect on uh, on a lived experience rather than as we currently do in, in, in clinic, you know, rank people on particular one dimensional facet of physical activity. So um, perhaps researchers listening into this will uh, take a lead from Sharon's view. Finally, Sharon, I, I, you mentioned that you know, many patients have ongoing debilitating symptoms in spite of no disease activity um, based on the current terminology we use. So we all, we all know there's a lot more to do to support patients and not just in terms of getting to minimizing disease progression, but also to help with existing symptom burden. So what do you think the priorities are for researchers in, in helping patients who have existing uh, symptom burden that perhaps these high efficacy treatments currently don't get to? Well, thank you for asking that question first. As someone who is on many medications, I can tell you that polypharmacy does add to the burden of disease. And I may sound naive to some, but I would love to see one priority being non-pharmaceutical alternatives for symptom management. I think another priority is to continue the growing recognition that treatment should be multidimensional and holistic. I was recently at a brain wellness launch that unveiled a new program, which included, among other things, uh, yoga, exercise classes, art, music, wellness as a whole. And at the launch, I was surprised to learn that we now know exercising quadriceps in particular and aerobics are beneficial to people with Parkinson's. I think it would be fantastic to find similar targeted treatments for MS. I mean, imagine being able to advise or prescribe specific exercises or programs tailor-made for MS. I think we also need to make, and I don't know how, more employers aware that accommodations like having to rest during the day or having a desk with natural light is not always luxury, but sometimes a necessity, that having a bad day should not end with being terminated. We want to work, have a career, and support ourselves, not struggle financially for the rest of our lives on a disability pension. I think that's a, it's a very poignant way to, to finish up. I think that's a, a thing we all feel when we see patients in clinic is that Patients want to contribute to society. They want to live independent and happy lives. And I think you've um, you've set the challenge to researchers listening in to develop new tools and to look at symptoms in a, in a more holistic way um, and come up with programs that really 
tackle some of these symptoms that uh, patients face on a daily basis. Well, Sharon, I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast today and giving your perspective. And I want to also tell our listeners that uh, Sharon's editorial and the paper by Chalmers and colleagues is now available to download on the JNMP website. Thank you and goodbye.